You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Well, I'd love to worship with you. Uh, Facebook informed me this morning that uh, five years ago on this day, I was in Brussels, Belgium, eating a waffle. Joanne, remember that? Uh, We were on a missions trip to West Africa uh, I think at that point we were uh, coming back home, and we had a little layover in Brussels, so we made our way uh, to uh, downtown Brussels and ate a Belgian waffle in Brussels. But here's the thing. I'd rather be here with you than in Brussels eating a waffle right now. Uh, and so that's how much I love our church family, love to worship with you. And so I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. This is... The final message, this is week seven uh, in our sermon series through the Old Testament book of Micah. And if you have not been with us uh, through this series, or maybe you've missed a week or two here and there, let's review for a moment. Uh, Micah is one of the minor prophets, uh, not considered a minor prophet because of uh, his message, but because of the length of his message. Uh, He prophesied in a day when the nation of Israel was in a state of moral decay, Uh, It was characterized by corruption and greed. Uh, Micah was from the small town of Moresheth in the southern part of Judah. He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. Uh, This was an era uh, of uh, Assyrian dominance. Uh, The Assyrians conquered Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Uh, They destroyed uh, parts of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Micah preached around the same time. Uh, as the prophet Isaiah and Hosea and Jonah and Amos. They were considered his contemporaries. Uh, The prophecy kind of divides pretty neatly into three parts. I hope that you've seen that uh, through this seven-week series. In chapters 1 through 3, we find what uh, I would call the expose. Uh, It's as if God, through the prophet Micah, is shining his spotlight on the greed and the corruption and the sinfulness of his covenant people Uh, particularly in that day. And then we have the expectation uh, of chapters 4 and 5. Jace and uh, Griff did a great job of covering those two chapters for us. And in those chapters, we see a bit more hope. Uh, It becomes a little more obvious. Uh, And then in chapters 6 and 7 here, as we wrap things up, we see the exaltation. Uh, We've used um, Mark Dever's insight into the book of Micah as kind of a foundation Uh, for some key truths that God wants us to understand uh, about himself through this study. Uh, The first one is that God wants wrongs to be rebuked. Uh, The second thing is that God wants his people to be restored. God wants his character to be known. And that's through the acknowledgement of his supremacy. That is through the remembrance of his righteousness and through the demonstration of his mercy. And that's important because what is true of God in Micah's day is true of our God today. Uh, And so we can easily look at this, if we're not careful, as some sort of a history lesson. And it's important for us to understand the historical context, certainly, in which uh, this uh, prophecy comes to us. Uh, But I think we also need to see the strong application to the day in which we live Uh, God uh, is a God of uh, love and mercy and grace and justice. Uh, And one of the things that he calls them out for are these grave injustices, the greed and the things that were uh, characteristic of that day. And so we see some striking similarities, actually, 
uh, to the covenant people of God in Micah's day, uh, the people to whom he was preaching, and certainly the day in which we live. You know, one of the things that we've noticed, uh, hopefully we've noticed in our study of Micah, is the way that he holds uh, two things together. He alternates back and forth between them. On the one hand, there is this honest, realistic view of the problems uh, of his own immediate context. It's really clear. The elites of Micah's society are abusing their power. Uh, There is oppression. There is injustice. The people have fallen into spiritual and moral decline before God. And the Lord is going to send the Assyrians to bring judgment on the northern tribes of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and even to the southern kingdom of Judah as well. He's very realistic about his immediate circumstances and the time in which he is prophesying. There's present suffering. Things are difficult. That's clear. But he's also, at the same time, full of hope. Now, this is important for us and where we live today because it would be very easy for us to watch the news when it seems we're hearing of another mass shooting or something of that nature almost every other week these days. Uh, We're watching uh, inflation uh, rise in ways that most of us have never seen it in our lifetime. We we, we can think of any number of reasons to uh, be given to despair, to discouragement. And certainly those are some harsh realities. We live in a very broken, sinful world. There's no doubt about it. But we should also be people of hope. We should be people of hope. None of the things that we're seeing in our world today take God by surprise or knock him off his game, as it were. God is sovereign and he's in control. And so Micah alternates back and forth. It's as though uh, from time to time the clouds uh, kind of part overhead and there are bright rays of sunshine uh, that show us a hopeful future. And it's an important and helpful model for us to see as we wrap up uh, Micah's prophecy here. We'll see it clearly here in chapter 7. He's realistic about present suffering, and yet he's full of hope about the future, and he holds those two things uh, together. I think about it this way. If all that he had was a view of present suffering, his realism might naturally lead to despair. And so he tempers this realism with hope for the future. But if all that that he he has here was an assurance of future glory, his hope may actually collapse into some sort of naive view of things, which has no way of weathering the storm of present suffering. Uh, And so, much like the day in which we live, we can't just bury our head in the sand, as it were, as much as I might like to. And I, I shared some hard things last week about even our own family of churches Um, Things that I I don't like to talk about, things that that bring shame on uh, any of us who are part of this family of churches, and and, and so uh, we, we can't do that. But I am filled with hope that God is going to lead and guide and direct us as a family of churches to, uh, to get things right. Uh, to, to, to lament, as we're going to learn this morning, and to seek God's forgiveness for these failures and to move forward in the right direction with new initiatives. And I hope that you'll join me in praying for our family of churches as thousands literally will be gathered this week in Anaheim, California for our annual meeting. And I'm going to be watching that with keen interest on live stream and uh, praying, hopefully, uh, for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who will be gathered there, will be the messengers in the room Uh, that wise decisions will be made, that God will guide the discourse. Um, And at the same time, I would encourage you to stay off of Twitter. 
okay? Um, uh, we, we do not do well on Twitter, okay? Uh, it's just, uh, and, and it's easy to look at some of those things and think, well, this, this is a representation of our entire family of churches, when uh, the reality is that's not true. Uh, so uh, with that, in, in, in all of this, we want to, to continue to see uh, this clear picture in holding these two things. Both together provide enormous strength and faith in the midst of difficult days. And it's a pattern that we need to learn from Micah, one of the, uh, and one that I want us to examine closely here in chapter 7. Now the first half of this seventh chapter really is reflecting on Micah's present circumstances. The second half, or the second part of the book, looks more directly toward the future. And so as we unpack this final chapter this morning, we're going to notice four tools, uh, is what I would prefer to call them, that Micah uses as he deals uh, with both present suffering and future hope. In verses 1 through 7, Micah shows us lamentation, what it is to lament. He engages in a song of lament. And then in verses 8 through 13, as he thinks about his present circumstances, he turns from lament to proclamation. He starts to preach, really to his own heart, the great central truths to which he clings in faith. And so we have this lamentation, proclamation. And then as he thinks about the future in verses 14 through 17, he turns to petition. He just he begins to pray. He begins to call upon the Lord as the great shepherd of his people to deliver them as he has done in the past. And so we have petition. And then finally, in verses 18 through 20, which we read together a few moments ago, we have adoration. So he gives thanks to God as he sees again his character and remembers his grace. He is a God who forgives sin. And so he asks the question, who is God like you? Who is, who is like the Lord? He sings with a grateful heart. So we have lamentation, proclamation, petition, and adoration. Four tools to use in the midst of present sufferings as we cling to future hope. Let's look together at the entirety of Micah chapter 7. I hope that you'll follow along as I read these 20 verses. He says, woe is me. We've seen the word woe used a number of times. You see it throughout uh, much of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, as they uh, pronounce these uh, woe oracles, oracles of judgment. But here, it, it seems a little different. He says, woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. What a graphic picture of the corruption of his day. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. This wicked web of corruption is what he's saying there. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their conclusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But then notice the tone changes in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes shall look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Asia and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, praise God. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of of old. So these four tools that Micah gives us in this seventh and final chapter of his prophecy, I want us to notice first of all, lamentation. What does it mean to lament? Some years ago, Carl Truman wrote uh, an essay entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? He's British, and so maybe it would help you make a little more sense of why he would choose that title. Uh, He was complaining, actually, in this essay that the church in the West has lost its capacity for lamentation. Uh, He says it this way. He says, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. And then he adds, a diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphant street party, a theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. You see what he's saying if, we, is, is if we've lost our capacity for lamentation, if the vocabulary of even our worship and our prayer, if it lives in only uh, in an upbeat, happy-go-lucky sort of way all the time, then we're left without words when things go horribly wrong. When unexpected sorrow pierces our hearts and tragedy strikes like lightning, and so the syntax and the grammar of our Christian lives will be unable to accommodate sadness and hardship and loss. We don't know what to say. 
I think back to my early days of ministry, and I had received a training, and I had learned how to conduct a funeral, and, and how to, to, to walk people through that process of losing a loved one, and all those things, but there's nothing more real than when that time comes, and you are standing face to face with someone who is living out some of the darkest days of their lives. I very naively thought that most of ministry, ministry would be made up of rejoicing with people. I could picture myself going to the hospital and holding newborn babies and dedicating those babies on a Sunday morning and all the, the things that, uh, that, that come with great joy and celebration and all of that. But I'm just going to tell you, that's not all of ministry. Much of ministry is made up with walking with people through the darkest days of their lives. And if there's anything that will scare a young preacher to death, it's not knowing what to say. What do I say when someone's just been diagnosed with cancer and it's terminal? I go, oh, everything's going to be fine. That's probably not what they want to hear at that moment. So what do we say? We urgently need to recover the language, the pattern, and the practice of lamentation. If you do this, Truman goes on to write in his essay, you will have the resources to cope with your own times of suffering and despair and heartbreak and to keep worshiping and trusting through even the blackest of days. You will also develop a greater understanding of fellow Christians whose agonies of, say, bereavement and depression or despair sometimes make it difficult to prance around in ecstasy singing, Jesus wants me for a sunbeam on Sunday morning. You'll have more credible things to say to those shattered and broken individuals to whom you may be called to witness of God's unconditional mercy and grace. One of my fellow pastors who serves the First Baptist Church up in Whitesboro, a part of our local association of churches, serves as a disaster relief chaplain, and he went to minister in Uvalde, Texas just a few weeks ago. What do you say? What do you say to people who are grieving so deeply? What do you say to a community of people who are are experiencing such a horrific thing? Can you really give them something? What do you have to say to them? The Bible tells us that certainly we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, but isn't it clear that we are also to weep with those who weep? Sometimes we lament. And I shared in a rather raw way last week some of my responses to the report that came out and and all those things. And I I found myself just saddened, deeply saddened by what I was reading. We lament. That's what Micah's doing here. Lamentation gives us vocabulary when sorrow penetrates our own lives. It gives us tools for ministry when it penetrates the lives of others. And so we need to relearn it. Verses 1 through 7 is a song of lamentation. And Micah models some of that for us here in our passage. What to do when God in his providence does not bring success but sorrow. When God doesn't bring celebration but sadness. And I want you to notice the graphic language in which chapter 7 begins. Again, he says, woe is me. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig. Uh, My soul desires. You see the picture. You see this metaphor. 
I'm like a fruit tree that has been picked clean. I'm past the the peak. Harvest is over. It's all winter from here on. That's how he feels about things. Why? What's going on? What's brought him to this place of lament? Well, you continue to read in verses 2 through 6, and Micah describes uh, the sorry state of Israel and Judah in those days. The godly have perished, replaced by bloodthirsty predators, is essentially what he's saying. The leaders, the judges, the princes, the great men, they take bribes. They use their positions to indulge their wicked proclivities so that now the punishment of God is about to descend. That's a heavy message. Neighbors, friends, spouses even, none of them can be trusted. Sons turn on their fathers, daughters, on their mothers, enemies found even inside one's own household. Micah's point is that every part of the community, every sphere of life has declined dramatically into moral and spiritual chaos, and it breaks his heart. And so he sings in lamentation, woe is me. Don't misunderstand. There's a huge difference between lamentation and a song of abject despair. Lamentation knows where to turn with tears. Lamentation knows what to do when sorrow pierces our lives. Because notice what he says in verse number seven. As for me, in my sorrow, as my heart is broken for the covenant people of God, I will look to the Lord. I'll look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. You may not know, you may not understand what God is doing in your life. You may not know how or even if the season in which you find yourself will end. It feels heavy and it feels hard and it feels sore. But lamentation is faith that runs to God in the time of trial and pours out grief before him instead of running from him. That's what Micah's doing here. His heart is breaking for the condition of his people. He's lamenting, but true lamentation runs to God with grief rather than away from him. Look again at verse number 7 and notice the language that Micah uses in particular. He doesn't say here, my God will fix me. Not even my God will change my circumstances, deliver me from the sources of my, my sorrows. Micah says, my God will what he will hear me. He will hear me. And sometimes that's what we need most urgently, not just a solution to our sorrows, but to know that we've been heard, that we have a God who listens and cares. And as we pour out our grief, as we throw our whys, even at the heavens, that there is one seated on the throne who understands. It is the testimony of Scripture that on the right hand of the throne of God is seated one who has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows. He knows. You can bring your lamentation to him. He hears you. The Lord Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he knows and he hears you. It's lamentation. You can go to him and pour out even your darkest sorrows and be confident that he hears. You have the ear of the living God as you run to him in the person of Jesus Christ. Lamentation. Then I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, 
That lamentation turns to proclamation. Look at verses 8 through 13. Micah, as prophets uh, do, he turns to preaching. He turns to proclamation. It looks as though in verse number 8 that he's preaching to his enemies. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. But if you keep reading down into verse 10, it becomes clear that he's speaking now about his enemies to someone else. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, and so on. And so how do we make sense of really what's going on here? I think in verse number 8, Micah is speaking to his enemies rhetorically. But the real target of his proclamation is his own heart. Please understand that that true preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ don't just proclaim that message to others. They proclaim it to themselves. I preach to myself every week. God is working me over every week in my study as I prepare to, to preach and to teach you. And so Micah is proclaiming these things to his own heart. And if you read through this section, it reads almost like a creed that Micah is reciting for himself for the strengthening of his own faith. Great central truths about the reliability and the grace of God. You ever ever watch some athletes? If you have a moment to watch them, for instance, uh, we're in the middle of the College World Series right now and and the super regionals, and so you'll see players step, uh, you know, toward the batter's box, and, and they'll, they'll, they, they, everybody has their own little routine, right? Most players will, like, take a big, deep breath. They'll do something, a cleansing breath or something like that, and, and many of them are talking to themselves in that moment, you know? Stay back, stay back. On, do, you know, all these different things. A player, before he shoots free throws, many times they're talking to themselves. They've, they've got things. I, I played golf with a, a guy one time, and, and I noticed before he hit the ball every time, he was saying something. And so finally I asked him, I'm like, hey, what are you saying before you hit the ball? And he's like, I say beta blockers. I'm like, beta blockers? Apparently he had been to some kind of a sports psychologist that told him to say beta blockers before he hit the ball. So I tried it. It didn't work. It, it did nothing for me, okay? I, I still play terrible golf. But, um, I mean, people do all kinds of, you, you kind of, you're trying to talk yourself up. You're trying to get your courage up. I know when I was a little kid, one of the things that I hated most was, one, is, is my passion today. I hated talking in front of people. If you would have told me, as an 8 or 9 or 10-year-old kid, that I would be doing this, that this is what God was calling me to, I would have said, you have lost your ever-loving mind. I hate to stand up and give a book report in front of my classmates. And so I would have to just like talk myself. I mean, I'm just like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I'm not going to throw up in front of my friend. I'm not going to, I mean, I can do, I'm not going to run out of the room scared to die. I can do this. And so in a sense, that's what Micah's doing here. He says, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. How much better we would all be if we would simply remember those lines and repeat them to ourselves often. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. There is no gloom so deep which in God's providence you may descend that the light of his truth and grace cannot guide you through it. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. So in verse 9, Micah gives us some help. When we endure providential sorrows and sufferings and the Lord disciplines us by them and begins to uncover by our trials many times layers of secret sin. They all start coming to the surface. 
They bubble up and he exposes the deep, hidden idols of our hearts. What do you do when God puts his divine finger on your sin? I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. That's Micah's posture. There are consequences because of my sin. God is disciplining me, and I will bear up under the discipline of rebuke by God's hand in meekness. That's why scripture commands us, gives us two distinctly different responses to the different kinds of trial and things in our lives. Sometimes we're experiencing hardship because we're stupid. We've made poor choices. So we're dealing with the consequences. So what do we do with that? Well, we repent. We seek God's forgiveness and and make the decision to turn from that and walk a different way. Sometimes as trials and things come into our life and seasons of sorrow that, 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 that characterize this life that we live in a broken, sinful world, Scripture tells us we're to bear up under it. The word is hupomene. Think of a, a weightlifter getting up under the bar and preparing to, to do squats. You bear up under it. So what do we do? What is our posture It's a remarkable statement because you remember last week in chapter 6, if you were here, how Micah characterized the Lord. He spoke of the Lord as the prosecuting attorney and as the great judge in the case of the sovereign uh, Lord versus the covenant people. The Lord had an indictment against the people, and Micah is saying, as he looks into the mirror, as it were, of God's holiness and justice and righteousness, he said, I'm guilty as charged. I'm guilty as charged, but he's also saying, I have an advocate to plead my case. The Lord will plead my cause, and he will be my vindication. The New Testament very clearly tells us that we have an advocate with the Father. You think of 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 8, and into chapter 2 even. If anyone confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he goes on to write there, My little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Where do you look when God puts his finger on your sin and disciplines you and brings you to your senses? You've been wandering away, you've been indulging your flesh, you've been living like a pagan, and now God has arrested you in his disciplinary rebukes, he's gotten your attention. Now you see yourself. What do you do? You run to Jesus. You run to Jesus. He is the only advocate for sinners. If you trust him, he will plead your cause and be your vindication. You have an advocate with the Father who's never lost a case in the heavenly tribunal. He will plead your cause. And notice how in verse number 10, the whole tone of Micah's language changes. Up until now, It's been lamenting and grieving. But as he thinks about the one who will plead his cause, in verse number 10, his enemy, the Assyrians, personified here as a woman who's been taunting the people of God, where's the Lord your God? Micah now seems to shine with assurance of confident expectation. So he says the enemy will be overcome. 
The Lord will triumph. The vindication of his people will be made clear. Where do you get this kind of assurance? Not in yourself. Not even in one another. You get it from the Lord Jesus Christ, your only advocate with the Father. And you get it by resting on the one who pleads your case. If you look at verses 11 through 13, Micah doesn't do what we often do when good news grips us and the weight of guilt is lifted from us and the light of pardon begins to shine in our conscience. We kind of keep it to ourselves. Whew, I feel better now. No. What does he do? Micah understands that having received grace, grace must go not only to his own heart, but to the whole world. So it's as if he starts looking toward the future here. He starts to think about the nations. He talks about the day. The day. We've heard him talk about the day back in chapter 4. He's thinking again about the day, I believe, the day of Messiah. That day, he said in chapter 4, will be a day when the nations will come streaming to Zion. And that's the the same sort of picture that he uses here in verses 11 through 13. A day uh, for building your walls. That day, the boundary will be far extended. The ancient enemies of the people of God, Assyria, Egypt, they'll come, not, not now to lay siege to the city, but to bend the knee to the Lord himself and to join the great assembly of his people in praising him. And so the grace that reconciled you to God is grace for the world, grace for the nations. And Micah preaches both of these things to himself. Yeah, he's dealing with present suffering. He preaches to his own heart where he can find the one who will plead his case. And then he reminds himself that the good news will reach the ends of the earth. And he reminds himself in verse 13 that there's also judgment to come and not just blessing. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds, those who will not bend the knee to Jesus Christ, here in repentance and faith. They will bend the knee to Christ hereafter when he comes to judge the living and the dead. I'll date myself here for a moment. Some of you might, uh, as you read those words, as you hear those words, you might be uh, reminded of an old Carmen song. Remember Carmen? Bow now or bow later. <laughs> bow now or bow later. That's basically what he's saying here. There are two destinies for every person in this room. There's the home of the righteous at the right hand of God in the presence of God, and there's wrath and judgment. And so Micah rehearses both realities to his own heart as though to ensure that he never forget to tremble before the sovereign Lord, that he never lose sight of the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, whose righteousness is an awesome thing. And then number three, Micah uses the tool of petition. He faces the future with two more vital disciplines, we sometimes call them. Look at verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff. He's calling on the Lord to be the good shepherd. This is vocabulary that we've seen Micah use before. It seems to be a favorite image of his. Micah himself is said to to come and shepherd the people in the strength of the Lord back in chapter 5. And Micah now prays, shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. It's as though Micah were praying Psalm 23. 
It celebrates the Lord our shepherd and whose rod and staff comforts us and leads us by green pastures and leads us by still waters. You'll notice that Micah models for us actually how to pray. He he presses upon uh, God in his own character. It's one of the things that we do as we pray. It's not that we need to inform God of something, but we come before God because of who he is, not just because of what he can do for us, not just because we feel like he can fulfill this wish list. No, we, we come to you based upon your very nature, your character, who you are, and so that's what he does here. And he does it with a sense of boldness because, remember verse 7, my God will hear me. He's confident of that. But then notice in verse 15, God answers. It says, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I, the Lord, will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. The Lord is going to bring a new exodus, a new deliverance from his people, and he will bring judgment upon the nations that will not bend the knee to him. Bow now or bow later. And then finally, adoration. So as Micah hears the response of God, the remainder of the chapter gives way to praise. And that's the last thing that we see here. As Micah hears the assurance of God... He begins to sing, verse number 18, who is a God like you? It it kind of forms almost a bookend to this prophecy because what did we learn in that very first week? Micah's name means who is like the Lord. Who is like the Lord? And that's what he says here. As he frames his concluding anthem of praise, celebrating the greatness and the goodness of God, he does it in this sort of play on words. Who is a God like you? You are utterly unique. There's no one to compare with you. And what is it that registers with Micah? That compels him to the celebration of the uniqueness of our living God? Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of your inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And so it's as if he ends this prophecy with this amazing crescendo of praise and adoration. I wondered this morning, what is it that makes you sing? So why I don't sing? Is the extraordinary news that in the face of the hateful wickedness of his people, in the face even of Micah's own acknowledged sin here, God delights to save sinners. What have we said all along? God wants to see his people restored. Like a pebble dropped into the ocean, our sins will sink out of sight before him. That's what makes Micah's heart sing. I wonder this morning, does it make your heart sing to know that you are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven? Does it make your heart sing 
that you have an advocate with the Father because of whose obedience and shed blood you stand robed with righteousness, accepted in the beloved, clean in God's sight. Is that your testimony? Because as Micah deals with the present sorrows and even an uncertain future, he lifts his voice and he begins to sing, as it were. He praises God, who is like you? There's none like you, a Savior who blots out iniquity, trampling sin underfoot. When at the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ, he crushed the serpent's head. He cast our sin into the depths of the sea. He was made sin for us as he was himself immersed and plunged into the ocean depths of divine judgment that we deserved. Praise God, Micah says, for his pardoning grace. And we may heighten the praises because we know by what means that pardon was secured. The blood of Jesus Christ. So how do you fight fear in days like these? The days in which we live. We've been through a global pandemic, economic chaos, moral confusion at every turn, all sorts of things. We could talk about them for a long time today. What do we do in the midst of that? So to fuel hope, in the face of dark days, under the boot, of, uh, boot heel of, of tyranny, to fight fear, strengthen faith, you pour out your tears in lamentation to the Lord who hears you. When was the last time that you really lamented over the world in which we live? This country in which we live. You preach good news to, to your heart until you believe it again. You have an advocate with the Father. You are accepted and beloved. And so you pray and you pray until you pray, O Lord, be who you are. Keep your promises. Shepherd your people. And then you lift your voice and you sing into the darkness words of gospel hope. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Sing Christ is risen from the dead. Lamentation, to be sure. Proclamation. Do you daily proclaim the gospel to yourself? Petition. Are you pleading with God on behalf of a broken, sinful world in which we live? Are you sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around you? Do you care enough to do that? And adoration. You praise God in the midst of the darkness that he is God. He's God. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment. I don't think we have to work very hard to see how applicable the prophecy of Micah is to the day in which we live. There's some striking similarities. And in recent days, we have seen that the brokenness and the sinfulness is not just somewhere outside the church. Those who claim to be the church, it is sadly 
even within the church. And I have to wonder this morning, are we willing, along with the prophet Micah, to look into the mirror, as it were, of God's holiness? And can we say in humility and in meekness, I'm guilty as charged. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet all the while, you can have gospel hope because you have an advocate with the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to take that step of faith today and would love to have a conversation with you, would love to share with you more from God's word how you can know that your sins are forgiven. You can know that you're in a right relationship with God, not because of anything you have done or can do, but entirely because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He continues to plead your case with the Father. If your testimony today is one of faith in Jesus Christ, I rejoice with you in that. And I would just simply ask that you join me and lament over the broken, sinful world in which we live, the atrocities that we see virtually every day, the corruption that is so evident in the world in which we live. And that we would lament even over the sin within the church. that God would break our hearts for the things that break his heart. That we would proclaim the gospel to ourselves. And that together we can continue to praise and worship our sovereign God. So Lord, today we thank you. We thank you for this ancient prophecy. And Lord, we marvel that how an ancient text like this can be so applicable to the world in which we live today. So God, we trust you. We trust that you are unchanging. That just like in Micah's day, you desire to see wrongs righted that you desire to see people restored, your name and character and nature known among the nations. So Lord, we thank you for those truths today. We give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.